Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King, we thank you for um, we thank you for Purim. We thank you for the uh, uh, the timely lessons that are preserved within the Book of Esther, and the challenges that um, that are presented before us. Um, not allowing the Hamans of this world to to crush our spirit, to steal our joy, or to derail us in our search and our quest uh, to become children of the Living God. Um, even though Haman tried, we know that he could not possibly have succeeded in exterminating the Jewish people because you have made a promise to Papa Abraham that you would preserve us and that you would keep us and that you would bring us to the promised land. And we know that in Messiah, that's exactly where we're going. So we thank you for the lessons that are um, taught in the book of Purim. And we thank you for, um, uh, for this community and for bringing us together, Jew and Gentile under your name. Help us as we study the book of Galatians in our uh, final few classes. Help us to um, clarify the points. Um, help us to make application um, so that we can be your witnesses. For it's in Messiah's name that we seek to do all things. Amen. Okay, my name is Ariel Ben-Lyman. This is Exegeting Galatians. I think I'll go ahead and date stamp this. Today is the 5th of March, 2007. We are in chapter 3 and we're on verse 19. Now, those of you who print this out from the website, hold up your hands again. Okay. What is it, page 45? Something like that? 35? 31? So it says, verse 19, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Then what does it say for comments? Great. So, go backwards to page... Um, it is, go backwards to page 19. Mm -hmm. In yours, it should be the same. Might not be 19. It's point number 8. It's kind of like a giant outline, and it's number 8. It's bold heading number 8. You see that? It's page 15? Okay. Alright, and so it says Galatians 3.19, and then you have some scriptures below it, right? Alright, that's where we're going to go today. For those who didn't print it out off of the website, I just made you copies. So raise your hand if you did not print it off of the website. Okay, I'll just hand you a copy. And yours doesn't have a page number on the bottom. 
That's because I gave you the freedom to either insert it where we've been going, or you can put the page, you can go backwards if you did print it off the website. So, there you go. Do you want me to give one for Jamie? All right. Okay. What we're going to look at tonight basically is the Torah, the law. Paul asks a rhetorical question. What's the purpose of the law? Why the law? We're going to look at it from three angles. We're going to ask the question three different ways. Is the Torah negative? Is the Torah neutral? Or is the Torah positive? Now, those of you who printed off the website, if you'll go to the very end, I believe you'll see that there's a section called Torah, negative, neutral, or positive. Do you see that as well? It's actually under the conclusions page. It's a heading that it just actually says Torah, negative, neutral, or positive. You see it there? What page is it on? 43? Do you see it? Alright, don't be, don't follow along with that, but keep in mind that that's a summary of what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay? My commentary really functions this way. I took the commentary, and if you look at the whole commentary from page 1 to page 50, whatever it is on the website, the commentary is actually comprised in such a way that most readers, and I'm, I'm kind of aware of this psychological reality, most readers want to know the gist of what they're reading earlier on. That Most people, and me included, um, we're too lazy to actually read through an entire document, to, especially if it's 50 pages long. We're too lazy to read through an entire document to find out exactly what the author's telling us. We really want to know within the first few pages. Give me a comprehensive summary of what you're telling me. So what I've actually done is I took the whole document. It's 57 pages long. And actually, all the truths of Galatians are found within the first eight points. Point one through point... Actually, it's however many points I broke it up into on the title page, if you look. Uh, Twelve points, right? See how that is? The, the, uh, and so really, through point like one through... Yeah, through 12... That's, that is the summary of the entire book of Galatians. And the excursus, which is kind of inserted in the middle, is a longer, what would normally be in most books, as a glossary at the end, or a, what do you call it, an extensive study at the end. Um, an excursus usually is found at the end of a book. Right? I simply took my excursus and included it in the document. But for the most part, you can get the gist of the document at this part, and that part. The, the gist of of what I'm trying to tell, teach whoever's reading my commentary. So that's why Galatians 3.19 has its own little section that's found in the main body of the commentary up here. But now that we're going through the excursus, which is verse by verse, we find that sequentially we run into 3.19 again. So I just tell everybody, point back here. Does that confuse anyone in the way that I've done that? I mean, again, if I ever write this, put it in a book, I'll actually put the excursus in the back. I won't put the verse by verse in the middle. But that's how I did it. So, let's look at Galatians 3.19. I, I made it its own section just because of the nature of the discussion and how it turns up in Christian circles. In fact, it is a major question among Christian theologians. What is the purpose of the law? Is it not? Is that not one of the main issues that is on the table between Messianics and Christians? And, in fact, Jews as well. So, that's why we're going to talk about it. Okay, let me find my copy. There we are. Okay, what I've done is um, I've broken it down into kind of, like I said, three basic approaches. Is the Torah um, negative, neutral, or positive? 
And in reality, I'll just tell you up front, the Torah carries, in a, in, in a crude kind of way, characteristics of all of them. But what I'm really... What I'm really hoping for when I ask the question, and why I'm dealing with this section, is because when Paul's dealing with the question, when he asks the question, and it's a rhetorical question, wherefore then serveth the law, his question has to be within the context of his already existing argument. It has to fit both the existing argument and further his argument. He cannot, let me put it this way, he should not. He could have, but I don't think he does. He should not simply just out of the blue go, gee, I think I'll talk about the Torah and it doesn't fit his argument. Taken out of context, we could make his verse chapter 3, verse 19, say any one of these. Because there are character, characteristics of the Torah that, depending on what the argument is for his audience, could fit every one. But what we want to find out is, according to where it's at in the book of Galatians right now, if Paul were giving a sermon, which one of these would it fit? That's where we're going to go with this. We're going to see that it's positive, actually. But the standard Christian answer is negative, okay, at this point in Paul's letter. So it's polar opposites from what we're going to see it really should be. David Stern actually kind of comes along in a neutral position. He doesn't say it's positive, even, even though David Stern is Torah, he's pro-Torah, just like all of us in this room are. But David Stern's still working with a little bit of a crutch when he wrote his commentary and his, and his Bible. He didn't have the information that we have today. Uh, he didn't have 4QMMT and things like that. So, um... Does everybody know what I mean when I say 4QMMT? All right. No? It's a, it's a Qumran document that was finally deciphered in 1995, even though they discovered it in 1953. And it contains languages in it that's similar to Paul, so similar, and they were write, written at the same time, so similar that it's not unnatural to make some assumptions between the two documents. Paul uses technical language. This other document, which is not in the Bible uses the similar language and therefore based on the fact that they're written around the same time period and they're written both written by Jews prominent Jews of a community and they're both halakhic treatises we can make some assumptions between the usages of the two terms and what we've drawn is some parallels between what Paul's writing about and what the the teacher of righteousness in this document is writing about and um, David Stern wrote his version like in the 80s late 80s before QMMT was uh, unearthed and before QMMT came along the terms that were used in Paul's letters were, were only found in Paul's letters. They weren't found anywhere else. No extant writings. We couldn't figure out what Paul's talking about. So the, the translators had to guess as to what Paul was talking about, based on the context and based on just the Greek and the syntax and everything. But when 4QMMT came along, they had something else to bounce off of, a springboard. And it was, a, it, it, it was able to take them in a, in a more clarified direction. So David Stern writing without the benefit of 4QMMT did a good job he brought it from negative, it, the view of Torah. He brought it from negative to neutral, okay? But he didn't quite take it over into positive as far as what Paul's talking about here. We need to, we need to push it at positive because that fits the context. If we say it's negative, then it throws Paul's context out. It's not theologically wrong to say it's negative in this, in this point. Because any misuse of Torah is what I call negative. Where the, where the Torah is, is not viewed as something that can help me. It's, it's viewed as a hindrance to me. And if you don't believe in Yeshua and you think the Torah is some simplistic tool that will get earn you brownie points with God, then that's a bad mindset. It's not the Torah's fault. It's your fault. But we have to label it negative because in that view, the Torah is a hindrance to you rather than a help to you, right? Something that should be helping you is, is blinding you to the truth. And so you kind of have to move, look the other direction, kind of take Torah out of you and look at faith. 
again, uh, David Stern brings it into a neutral position. We want to we take it to a positive position because that fits the context. So I'm giving you the answer right up front. But now let's work it out. Let's see if my answer fits or did I just, did I just put a round peg in a square hole or whatever and make it fit. Galatians 3.19. What I'm going to do for you first is I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six different versions. Just to show you two things. One, I want you to see how they're translating um, a phrase called um, uh, the second clause. It was added because of transgressions. I want to see how you. I want you to see how they translate that in these six different versions. The other reason is because translators work. They take the original Greek syntax and sometimes they they swap them around according to what they feel is the best way to smooth out the way the sentence is 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 said. Do you know what I mean when I say syntax? Who doesn't know what I mean? Y everybody see Star Wars? You know how Yoda talks? You know, strong are you? Wise am I? His syntax is backwards according to common English understanding. Strong are you? What do we usually say? You are strong. Wise am I? What do we usually say? I am wise. Syntax deals with the order in which we place our verbs and our nouns. So, Yoda speaks backwards, according to us. His syntax is reversed. Greek and Hebrew do that sometimes, too. The syntax, the word orders, are reversed. The clauses are in a way that if we translated them clause for clause down into the English, it would be awkward to our English ears. We would say, you know, it would say, like, wise am I, strong are you. So translators noticing that actually usually clean it up by swapping it back around and saying, I am wise, you are strong. Even though the Greek literally has strong are you, wise am I. That's syntax. Well, sometimes that can trip up a translator if the relationship between one clause and the second clause is meant to stay together. If they swap two clauses around, then we lose the force of the way the original writer was trying to see the, the relationship between the first two clauses if we disconnect them and insert another clause here. Okay? When I say insert, they're still, use, they're still working with the original data, the original raw data that's in the Greek. They're simply rewording it so that it so that it, it smoothed out according to our translation. So that's why I gave you six different translations. We're going to find that only one of them has the right clause, the right syntax. All right, let's read them. KJV. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. ASV, which is the authorized standard version. What then is the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise hath been made and it was ordained through angels by the hand of a meteor. Sounds very close because the ASV is, should be, I think, a cleaned up version of the KJV. And so, you know, in translations, you can move from dynamic, dynamic equivalent to paraphrased. You know the differences? Dynamic equivalent takes as best as they can nearly all of the syntax and just drops it right down into the receptor language. It goes from Greek right down into English and it doesn't try to clean up a lot of the um, syntax. It tries to leave it somewhat woodenly. That's what we call more um, dynamic translation. Um, word for word is what you might call it. Literal translation. Young's literal is one of those. Um, other versions like the NIV and stuff, they actually take what the Greek says and then they paraphrase. So that means they add words, they add, you know, they, they embellish a little bit with the text. It's not wrong to do that, but what ends up happening is you don't get word for word. You get So that when you go to look up, well, what's this word? What's the original Greek word behind this word? That word's not in the Greek. You have to realize that the inserters, the translators inserted words. So it depends on what your preference is, what your shift is in your pendulum. Do you like more dynamic? Do you like more paraphrase? Whatever. Because sometimes, even if it's word for word, you still can't figure out what the translators or what the original author is trying to say. You do need a paraphrase sometimes. So neither's right, neither's wrong, just 
depends on what type of study you're doing. All right. Look at Young's literal translation, the YLT. Why then the law? On account of the transgressions, it was added. See now, notice how that word added and transgressions gets swapped. It was added because of transgressions, it said in KJV and ASV. But now suddenly in YLT, we got transgressions before the word added. That's a syntactic, that's a syntactic switch. Everybody see that? Okay. Sometimes it doesn't make a difference. Other times, it makes a huge difference. Um, on the count of the transgressions, it was added, till the seed might come to which the promise hath been made, having been set in order through messengers in the hand of a mediator. Uh, why, why e, uh, I think it's Weymouth, Weymouth's translation. Um, Y-E-W. Yeah, Weymouth, New Testament. Uh, why then was the law given? It was imposed later on for the sake of defining sin. Now, isn't that interesting? This is more paraphrased. It was imposed later. He doesn't even use the word added. It was imposed later for the sake of defining sin. He doesn't use the word transgression, which is the Greek word hamartia. Um, he uses the word trans defining sin. Paraphrasing. Until the seed should come to whom God hath made the promise, and its details were laid down by a mediator with the help of angels. See? He's got angels last instead of mediator last. They, they switched that clause around there too. Now, unless you go back into the original Greek manuscripts, you won't know which one is right syntax or wrong syntax. And if it's not a if it's not a if it's not a technical discussion, it doesn't matter. Does that make sense? If it's not a technical discussion, it doesn't matter. But in asking the question whether the law is negative, neutral, or positive, that's a technical discussion. We need to know the syntax. We need to re, we, in other words, we need to get down as close to what Paul wrote and go from there as possible. Yes. Technical like if I say um um, let's say it's in a court of law, and every word needs to be understood both by the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, the defendant. So that if I use colloquialisms, there's a, mis there's a possibility that maybe the jury might understand the colloquialism literally, versus the judge might understand it as a, as a, a colloquialism. In a technical discussion, if I'm a prosecutor or a DA, I need to let my judge know I'm going to use a colloquialism, a colorful phrase so that the jury, who's, and, and also the court recorder, knows that it's a colorful phrase. That's what I mean by technical. Words that are being spoken may possibly contain hidden meanings or nuances. That's what I mean by technical. Um, and that happens if you get two people who are of the same, say, uh, mindset. Like maybe two internet people or two, two web-savvy people might talk, and someone who's not web-savvy might listen in. And the two web-savvy people talking might use verbiage that, that's not common to most people. That's a technical discussion for them. It's what, it's what I call intra-Jewish dialogue or intra-family dialogue. In Paul's case, he's using terms that both the influencers, which are Jewish, know, and the Jewish population in his, in his synagogues who are reading the letter, they know. The Gentiles might not know some of it, but um, they would, with, with their relationship to the synagogue, they would eventually pick up on some of the jargon. So, it's a technical term. In fact, the word works of law is a technical term. All right. That was a good question. Okay, look at the English Standard Version. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediator. And then look at CJB, of course, David Stern's version, which I have right here. I, I like his version. It is, a, it is a paraphrase. So, some people don't like paraphrases. They don't like his version. But I think he paraphrases in the right places. <laughs> so he's done a good job. Besides, he brings the Torah down into a neutral position where as the church sees the Torah as negative. 
And so the, because the church can't see the Torah as neutral or hopefully positive, David Stern brings that understanding down to neutral and gives us that benefit. So then, why the legal part of the Torah? It was added in order to create... Trend. Notice he put legal part of the Torah. The Greek really just says, wherefore, wherefore Torah. It's like two words. Why Torah of sorts. Why then the law? Young's literal is closest. Why then the law? But David Stern inserts, why then the legal part of the law? So already you can see he's paraphrasing. He's trying to get the readers to understand that Paul's not talking about the entire Torah in his discussion. He's limiting his understanding of the Torah to a certain part or function of the Torah. Because the Torah functions in different ways depending on where the individual is at. And, and David Stern believes, just like I believe, that, he, that Paul is using uh, a certain portion of the Torah to get his audience to understand a certain point. And in that case, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We can't say that all the law is done away with or all the law functions this way. It's a part of the law that Paul's describing. David Stern's picking up on that, and that's why we can move down into neutral. The church not picking up on that throws the entire uh, uh, argument into neutral. Somewhat. Somewhat, yes. Yeah. Um, we're going to see that David Stern kind of, when I say neutral, neutral because of its position of being between negative and positive has a little bit of influence on either side. Whereas negative is polar opposites of positive. Positive is polar opposite of negative. But neutral is like the color gray. It has a little bit of white and a little bit of black. So yeah, neutral has a little bit of negative and a little bit of positive. So when he says create, you're going, huh? Yeah, we're going to look at that. Okay. Yeah, we're going to see how that works out. Yeah, you're, you're actually starting to work in the direction I want you to work. If you hadn't read my commentary, you, if you're starting to think like that, that's exactly what I would want you to think, which is great. So let's find out. Um, after reading the CJB there, the, the, the whole argument is still indented, if you notice on my commentary. That's because I'm quoting someone. These are not my words. If you want to see who I quote, then turn to page 20, look down at the bottom, and look at the footnote number 15. At least it's 15 on my page at the very bottom of the page where the footnote is? I'm quoting Bible Gateway. Okay? Now, just off the top of your head, do you think Bible Gateway is a Jewish, Christian, or non, you know, like secular uh, internet site? Christian. Right, okay, you're right. It's Christian. So, the commentary, before we even read it, do you think it's going to be positive towards Torah, neutral towards Torah, or probably negative towards Torah? Probably negative, okay. Good assumption. Let's read. According to Paul, the law has a negative purpose. If you couldn't guess it, it's in the first sentence. Yeah, right up front. Now, by the way, I don't have anything against Bible Gateway as a website. Great resource. But they are very popular for Christians. Yeah, this is not some obscure, you know, fly-by-night website that is up one day and gone the next. This is a very well-established, very credible website. And so when you go to Galatians and you look up their commentary section and you read this, it's interesting that this is what's being presented to anyone who's reading. So I just threw that out there for good measure. According to Paul, the law has a negative purpose. You know, negative. It was added because of transgressions. All right? They just take the literal. Now they're going to explain. Paul has already demonstrated what the law does not do, viz. It does not make anyone righteous before God. Okay, I agree with that theologically. It doesn't make anything righteous before God. If we're wielding the word righteous as forensic, I agree. That's a technical term, Mimi. I just introduced. <laughs> All right. And if they don't make that distinction, then I might disagree with them. But since I am assuming that's what they mean. It is not based on faith. And again, that's a technical term. And it's not the basis of inheritance. I agree with that technically. 
So, if the law is divorced from righteousness, faith, and inheritance of the blessing, to what is the law, law related? Let me pause. By them asking that question, they're assuming that Paul is that Paul's readers have come to that same conclusion. Because Paul's just got through giving this huge diatribe on how that righteousness is attained by faith in God, and that it's not by Jewish lineage, it's not by Jewish ethnicity, it's not by the conversion policy, it's not by any works that you could supposedly do. He gives this long list of, of things that can't earn you salvation, and in that, after that long lengthy discussion, which, which is really chapter 3, verses 1 through where we're at now, 18, after that long discussion, the audience might go, well gosh, I guess the, the law is useless. So Paul, sensing that dilemma, steps in and says, so why then do we have the law? I'm glad you asked. It's more or less Paul's anticipating his, off, his uh, uh, audience's fear or dilemma. Or, you know, a Jewish person might, after a while, might think, well, gosh, man, the Torah, this guy's just, is the Torah even worth anything to us anymore? In other words, he doesn't, if he were to stop his sermon at verse 18, they might get up, walk out, and burn their Torahs. Paul doesn't want that. So he has to stop and go, why then do we have the law? That exact um, anticipation of the audience's um, concern is actually what the author of this website did as well. So I'll give him credit for that, where he says, um, so if the law is divorced from righteousness, faith, and inheritance of the blessing, to what is it related? It's a rhetorical question, but he's asking it for the sake of his audience. All right, That's good. That's a good teacher who anticipates his audience's uh, concerns. Paul says that the law is related to transgressions. A transgression is the violation of a standard. The law provides the objective standard by which the violations are measured. You can circle the word measured there if you'd like. In order for sinners to know how sinful they really are, how far they deviate from God's standards, God gave the law. That little statement right there is, is what they call negative. Although, all right, It has a sin-raising conscious role, but it doesn't offer you any remedy according to the Christian view. Before the law was given, in other words, it it measures sin. Okay, you might say, well, why is that negative? Because it points out to you how sinful you are. Okay, in that role, it measures sin, describes sin, and tells you you're a sinner. But it doesn't stir up any propensity within you, so far as the author is saying. It doesn't stir up any propensity within you to sin anymore. Okay? David Stern's going to come along and kind of say, no, it actually does. And based on Paul's argument in Romans 7, he's right. The Torah does stir up sin within you. Okay? It goes from being passive, showing you what sin is, to actually kind of taunting you, going, hey, hey, you sinner. Hey, you're not keeping the law. Hey, listen to me. I said you're, you're out of line. To where you're kind of upset now with the law. To where you might want to kind of lash back out at the law. Because it's not only showing you what sin is, it's, it's, it's actually pushing you in a position. Now when I say you, you ought to, to understand the you that what I'm talking about here is an unregenerate person. The law is actually pushing you to the point where you're kind of sinning some more. Be- in, in other words, in your effort to keep the Torah, you actually find yourself sinning more which is the opposite effect that you would think the Torah should do. But keep in mind that you're an unregenerate person working outside of the help of the Holy Spirit. That's why David Stern says um, creates transgression, where this simply says measures transgression. All right, that's kind of a little bit of where you're going here. And again, David Stern's bouncing off of Romans chapter 7 where Paul talks about how that sin 
seizing the opportunity within me makes sin even more sinful. And that's what they, that's, that is what Paul says in, in Romans. But we're not in Romans. We're in Galatians. So we can't take what Paul said in Romans and apply it to Galatians. Theologically, it's true. But for the argument, it's not true. All right. So, um, so let's see. Before the law was given, there was sin. See Romans 5.13. But after the law was given, sin could clearly be specified and measured. Circle the word specified and measured. See? Measures sin. Specifies sin. Alright? So far, again, keep in mind that it's negative in the sense that it doesn't give you any remedy. It simply keeps pointing it out. It's kind of like it's kind of like if I were cheating on my wife and there were a Bible on the coffee table next to me where I was committing the sinful act, that Bible is a reminder of the sin I'm committing. So in that, in that scenario, the sin is pleasurable. That's positive experience for me. It's a positive feeling that I'm getting. The sin. Because sin feels good. Let's admit it. So as I glance over at the Bible... I get the reverse feelings. I get a negative feeling. That's why I put negative up here. It's providing... It's like people who have a propensity to break the law when they see policemen. They don't like policemen. They say, gosh, I hate cops. Why do you hate cops? If you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't hate them. They're just doing their job. So to them, cops are negative. Okay? That's what, that's what um, this author is trying to say here about the law. Each act or attitude could then be labeled as a transgression of this or that commandment of the law. Imagine a state in which there are many traffic accidents but no traffic laws. Although people are driving dangerous, harmful ways, it is difficult to designate which acts are harmful until the legislature issues a book of traffic laws. Then it is possible for the police to cite drivers for transgressions of the traffic laws. I might add, what if those people who speed like to speed? Well, then they're not going to like the cops. Right? For them, the cops are a negative aspect of their driving experience. That's what I mean by negative. But what if the cops actually followed you around? Do the cops follow you around today? I mean, excessively? No, not really. They just kind of wait and do their job. But what if they actually followed you around everywhere just to see if you'd speed? Well, then not only would they, would they hate you, um, and I say neutral, but in a sense they would, it, 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 they would stir up within you more hatred for them so that you actually maybe even send more or sped more or whatever. Maybe you'd slow down. I mean, that's the idea, but some people, you know, they see the cops, they try to outrun them. Who knows? Um, we'll see how it comes neutral in a second. When, when David Stern actually describes it, when I read his commentary here, we'll see how that fits in. All right. Uh, then it is possible for the police to cite drivers for transgressions of the traffic laws. The laws define harmful ways of driving as violation of standards set by the legislature. Defines. All right. Specifies, measures, defines sin. Um, you can circle the word defines there if you want. Thus, the function of traffic laws is to allow bad drivers to be identified and prosecuted. All right? So we got specifies, measures, defines, identifies. The temporal framework for the law is clearly established. Notice he says temporal. Did Paul say it was temporal? No. But they're going to assume it's temporal by jumping into the next clause because the Greek says until the Messiah comes. So we use the natural understanding or the, he, the English use of the word until and we say it has a, a temporal, you know? Like if I say, hold out your glass and I'm going to pour and I'm going to pour until you tell me to stop. It has a temporal aspect. So I pour and when you say when, then I stop. 
The word until is the ending point in, in, in our English understanding. But is that exactly how Paul used it? Maybe, maybe not. This author thinks he did. The temporal framework of the law is clearly established by the words added until. He uses the word added as one bookend and the word until as the other. Beginning and end. Until the sea to whom the promise referred had come. Paul has already emphasized that the Mosaic law was given 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant promise. So in this author's view, Bible Gateway, um, added 430 years afterwards is something is the beginning point of the Torah. So we have added as the um, maybe that the that bookend. Okay. Um, the word added implies that the law was not a central theme in God's redemptive plan. Really? It was supplementary and secondary to the enduring covenant made with Abraham. As the word added marks the beginning point for the Mosaic law, the word until, so circle the words added and until. Can I reset? I don't have any eraser. Um, the word until marks its end point. See? There's the bookends for, and what we call this, by the way, is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism says, grace in Abraham, law in Moses, grace in Yeshua. So that the law is marked out by clear boundaries of when it was added and when it was ended. It was added after Abraham, and it went until Yeshua. Bookends for the Torah. And we call that dispensation. Dispensation of grace, dispensation of law, now we're back under the dispensation of grace again. That's what the dispensationalists say who came along in, I think, the 15th or 16th century. Um, all right, so as the word added marks the beginning, the word until marks its end, the Mosaic Law came into effect at a certain point in history and was in effect only until the promised seed Christ appeared. That's how come the church believes firmly that the law is done away with. Because they're looking at Paul's verse here and saying, okay, we can see where Paul describes when the law came into effect. Now we can also see where Paul says the law came to an end. And they look at us messianics and say, why can't you people see that? Isn't that, in fact, an understanding of the English? Yeah, but is, it an, is that an understanding of what Paul said contextually? No. And the Greek's actually going to bear it out. If they look up the word until, we're going to get to that in a second. There is, a, In other words, until does not mean what it means in English. There is a contrast here between the permanent validity of the promise and the temporary nature of the law. See how he contrasts um, promise with law. That's the whole law versus grace argument all over again, right here in this paper. Uh, on the one hand, the promise was made long before the law and will be in effect long after the period of law. On the other hand, the law was in effect for a relatively short period of time, limited in both directions by the words added and until. See that? All right. As we shall see in our study in the next few sections of the letter, Paul's presentation of the temporal framework of the law is a major theme of his argument for the superiority of the promise fulfilled in Christ over the law. Again, this argument is called law versus grace. Who doesn't know that argument? Everybody knows it. Do a Google search for it. Law vs. Grace. You'll get tons of information, all, all of them from the Christian side usually, and they're all in favor of grace. It, there's no argument of law versus grace. I'm telling you up front. It's not law versus grace. That's the wrong question to begin with. This theme differs radically. That's not to say that they are just, we can't throw out all of their arguments. We just have to say that their study on the law is wrong there, okay? Um, this theme differs radically from the common Jewish perspective of his day. No, it doesn't. Which emphasizes the eternal immutable nature of the law. The Jewish people, it's, at least though he caught, whoever wrote this, he caught the idea that law is a 
is, a, is an important thing in Jewish circles. Notice he says, this theme differs radically from the common Jewish perspective of his day, which emphasized the eternal, immutable nature of the law. So the author is now pitting a Christian theology against Jewish theology and saying that Paul is on the Christian side, doing an about-face, pointing his bony finger at the, Jew, that, at the Jewish view, saying, you guys are wrong. You guys thought the law was immutable. What does he say? Um, you thought the law was immutable, uh, unmovable, eternal? No, it's not. Only Yeshua is the law is very limited, and blah, 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 blah. And that is, of course, the Christian view today. And if you ask the Jews they'll still take the same position that they've taken for the last 2,000 years, nay, the last 3,300 years, that the law is eternal. What does he say? Uh, eternal, immutable, and such. Why? Because that's the truth. <laughs> it is that way. But we don't see that in the, tr in the Christian church. We're blinded to that aspect. So, concerning this verse, now these are my comments as the, as the end it goes farther back over to the left. This is my comments. Concerning this verse, Stern seems in some ways... To take the popular Christian view is noted above just a step further. That's why he contains a little bit of this, and he spins it off just a little bit differently. While not casting the Torah in a negative light, he nonetheless seems to not fully capture the intended meaning of Paul's point in verse 19. Because of his widespread acceptance among many Messianic believers, his view is worth critiquing. That's why I actually put it in my commentary. Otherwise, I probably would have glossed over it. Moreover, his popularity in the Messianic community has far-reaching influence in the way the movement forms their view of the Torah. Writing in his Jewish New Testament commentary, we read, and all emphasis are here, all the bolds are his, all the highlights are his. So then, why the legal part of the Torah? Why was it needed at all if the promise is independent of it? It was added to the promise and to the environment of Jewish history in particular and human history in general in order to create transgressions. Now, it sounds odd until you, let me read them. In order to create transgressions, literally because of transgressions. The latter could mean in order to contain and limit transgressions. Now, in that sense, he, he, he says in order to contain and limit transgressions. He captures a little bit of that. He says that up front. In order to, in, the latter could mean in order to contain and limit transgressions, in order to keep the Jewish people from becoming so intolerably sinful that they would become irredeemable. But instead of this, I think it means, and of course this is still stern speaking when he says, I think, I think it means, as Shaul explains in Romans 7, see, he jumps from Galatians to Romans 7 and brings the Romans 7 argument into Galatians, which, as much respect as I have for Mr. Stern, was not a good move. Um... I think it means as Shaul, Shaul, at least he says, I think. I'll give him that credit. He says, I think. I think it means, as Shaul explains in Romans 7, that a key purpose of the commandments was to make Jewish people ever aware of their sin. That's, that's not a neutral position where the Torah just sits back and says, Hi, how you doing? I'm here to remind you of your sin. Or limit it. Um, that, to limit it is one thing, but to remind you and continue to remind you of it is a different thing. But the Torah takes the offensive. You know what I mean? All right, that's what David Stern's going with this. Um, is to make Jewish people ever aware of their sin. Not that Jews were more sinful than Gentiles, but that, like Gentiles, Jews too fall short of earning God's praise. The Torah creates transgressions, and he does have it in quotes. The Torah creates transgressions by containing commandments which people break, indeed which rebellious human nature perversely wants to break. See how he describes why the Torah jumps down into, into the, takes the offensive roles, because the human is all the more bent towards disobeying. So the, so the Torah goes on the offensive and not only just says, no, that was wrong, but the Torah actually steps in and, and pesters him about it day and night. Um, 
which rebellious human nature perversely wants to break. But at least in some cases, the guilt they feel causes them to despair of ever earning God's praise by their own works, so that they come to God in all humility to repent, seek his forgiveness, and trust in him. Until the, and then he, and that's his, that's what, that's, I put that as neutral, but perhaps maybe you are seeing it's more negative, right? It's certainly not positive. Because if the Torah is bugging you day and night that you're a sinner, and you are a sinner and you're comfortable in your sin, then it's not a good thing for you. It's a bad thing for you. It's positive from God's point of view. Don't get me wrong. God does want you to turn from your sin. And God will put within your life things that show you that you're wrong. But from your limited perspective as a blind person, you don't want to be told that you're doing wrong. Right? Because you're, you're in sin. And you, lo- you like your sin. Right? A- in fact, this is the position of many of the leaders of, of, of Yeshua's day. Especially the ones that John... Uh, um, encountered, you know, he's out there baptizing for repentance in water, and they show up, and he looks at them and says, "Who warned you guys about the the judgment to come? You vipers! You guys don't want to turn from your sin because if you did, you'd do the works commensurate with repentance. But the fact is, you don't want to turn from your sin. So, in other words, you hypocrites, get out of here! This is for genuine repentance sinners. Don't come stepping into my water if you don't really want what this water is offering. Is what I'm paraphrasing what John's saying. The people who, who, who are broken and cry out, God, I'm so sick of my sin, please deliver me. Then the Torah is positive for them. It shows them where they need to change. But for, but for people who are still loving their sin, they're, 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 they're still wedded to their sin, they're still completely dark and devoid of any light, and they don't want to repent, then the Torah is a bad thing. Yeah, because it nags them. It's like their conscience. It's like, you know, get away, get away. I like my sin. All right, so... Maybe my use of the word negative isn't as strong as it should be. I, dro- I dropped it down into negative because I because um creates um because David Stern's trying to bounce off of this and give his own view, and his own view is not this and it's not that. So I'm like, well, where else is it? Must be somewhere in the middle, because he does say that it's not this and he doesn't say it's that yet. We haven't even said really what it is, and I only have like ten minutes left. So let me see if I can accelerate this. I'm not going to read well. I'm not going to read David Stern's second comment where it says, until the coming of the seed about whom the promise has been made, because that part is nearly identical to the Christian view. Um, From the time of Moses until the coming of Yeshua, the Torah had a conscious raising role towards sin. The Torah still exists in this force, and for those who have not yet come to trust in Yeshua, it still has this function. But for those who do trust in Yeshua and are faithful to him, the Torah need no longer serve in this capacity. So that really is standard Christian theology, and it's actually accurate, too. The Torah tells you that you're a sinner until you come to Messiah. Then the Torah doesn't have to tell you you're a sinner anymore. The Torah kind of just shows you what righteous living is all about. I mean, it does show you sin, but it doesn't show you that you're a condemned sinner. It shows you that, no, 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 righteous people shouldn't sin. Okay? That's a different message. Let's say you're a sinner and you don't know Yeshua. In this role, the Torah will come and say, you're a sinner and you're bound for hell. And the reason you're sinning is because you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you're sinning. Okay? They're linked together. In other words, you have a heart issue. You need a heart transplant. Okay, that's what the Torah would say to you if you're a sinner. So you say, okay, fine, what can I do? I need to accept Jesus. And Jesus comes into your life. Now you're a saved person. Now the Torah would come along and it wouldn't say to you, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. No, that's wrong. Because you're saved now. The Torah would say, no, now that you're saved, you shouldn't sin. In other words, it identifies who you are and how you should behave. That's a different message. Same Torah, though. Isn't that really weird? Same function, yeah. Torah, that's what David Stern just described there. But even still, we're not talking about what Paul's talking about. We haven't even hit the issue. So let's jump down. Bottom of the page 221, or bottom of page 21. Let's see if I can um, actually skip over the next comment. Turn to page 22, or the next page. 
I, I actually give you another. Um, I give you David Guzik, who's a very also a very great commentator. He kind of he kind of hits both of these in his commentator. He hits negative and neutral. I don't want to go there either. Let's just jump straight straight down to what I believe the positive view is because I only have f- seven minutes. All right, right in the middle of page twenty-two. True, the Torah does possess a sort of conscious raising role with regard to sin. Okay, conscious raising. All right. Conscious raising role with regard to sin, as correctly stated by Guzik and as correctly noted by Stern in Romans chapter 7. But given the immediate context of the following complementary verses, all right, the verses where he says the Torah was given through a mediator, through angels, I mean, what does that have to do with all of this? That's the whole point. That's why we know the context is odd. Why would, David, why would Paul just go, the Torah specifies sin, and it was given through angels and a mediator? What does that have to do with anything? Okay, it's in the same verse. So we have to understand the context of what it really means based on the surrounding word. All right. Um, it seems more likely that this is not the apostle's intended meaning here. Instead, Tim Haig seems to uncover Shaul's true positive intentions with his well-written commentary to Galatians study quoted at length here. Here we go. The language of our present verse would indicate that we should read it positively. The whole verse is positive, not negative, not neutral. Why the Torah? Okay, let's spin it positively now. Why the Torah? It was given, or added to the revelation already given in the Abrahamic covenant, to reveal the divine method of dealing with transgression. Suddenly, we have a remedy. This guy didn't mention any remedy. It just tells you what sin is. David Stern didn't mention any remedy. He just told you how how it kind of chases you down and and makes makes you matter and matter. But only Haig's commentary mentions the remedy. And the remedy is linked to the next clause, until. Let me see if I can get through this. In other words, to reveal the divine method of dealing with transgression. You can circle that or underline that. In essence, for the sake of transgressions. Already, watch this, already prejudiced against the Torah, the typical Christian exegesis misses the fact that a good deal of the Torah centers upon the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. How were the covenant members to deal with the inevitable presence of sin in their personal and corporate lives? The Torah gives the answer. That's positive, right? The Torah gives the answer by repentance and acceptance of God's gracious gift of forgiveness through the payment and, and accept, I'm sorry, through the payment of a just penalty exemplified in the sacrifice, it was the Torah that revealed in clear detail the method which God had provided for transgression, and it was this method, the sacrificial system and the priesthood, that pointed to Messiah. See how it's linked to the phrase "until Messiah." The the Greek is "achri Christos." The ultimate sacrifice and means of eternal forgiveness. Thus, Paul adds, until the seed would come. That's why it's linked there. To whom? It, it's not limiting the Torah. Okay? Until the seed would come, it actually links it to the purpose of the Torah. Thus, Paul adds, until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. In the Greek, this clause follows second immediately after it was added because of transgressions. That's why we need the, the syntax uh, stuck the way it is. The ESV has the order correct, the English Standard Version. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offering should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediator. The Torah was given in order to reveal God's gracious manner of dealing with transgressions in essence through the death of an innocent substitute. Paul therefore immediately makes this point by adding until the seed would come. Here, as is often, the word until is the Greek word achri. The Hebrew is ad. And it has the preliminary meaning of, quote, 
marker of continuous extent of time up to a point until. The point is that the revelation of the Torah regarding how God provides redemption in the face of transgressions has its focal point in Yeshua. Once Yeshua has come and offered himself as God's eternal sacrifice, the ultimate revelation to which the sacrifice is pointed had been given. In other words, the fullness had arrived. And this is Paul's consistent perspective. The Torah leads to Yeshua and the continuing context of Galatians 3. So in my last few minutes, three minutes, let me just summarize. All right? Provides... The remedy for sin. Okay? Specifies, measured, defines sin, but no remedy. Creates sin, but no remedy. Versus provides the remedy for sin. In other words, all of humanity is locked up in a room with no doors and no windows, and the room is called sin. And left to ourselves, we'll destroy ourselves with no remedy. Okay? God knew this. So ultimately he's going to send his son, but before then he sends the Torah to point towards his son. So the Torah is not something that's dropped into the room of humanity to just simply point out sin but don't tell us what else to do or simply make us sin more but still not tell us what to do. No, the Torah does carry those functions, but the true purpose in this passage is to come in and point the way towards the redemption. Okay, to provide a remedy. And the way I've described it is the word achri, until in the Greek, it really means um, with a view towards. Not until as in stop, but with a view towards is kind of like a, kind of like if you're in a dark room, okay? Let's say you and I are in a very dark room. And the room is, say, 100 feet long. And we're at one end. And you need to get out of the room. And it's so dark that you can't even see the, the, your hand in front of your face. And so I walk up next to you and I say, I know the way out. And you're like, great, show me. So I pull out this huge flashlight. And the, the door's on the other end. And I go, click. And I turn it on. And I point the flashlight towards the door. What I'm doing is I'm showing you the way. The flashlight functions to point the way towards the door. So from where you're at to where you need to be. That's what the word until means in Paul's word here. With a view towards Yeshua. In fact, it says until Messiah, right? Until Messiah. Achri Christos in the Greek. But it's with a view towards Messiah. In other words, the, the law was added with a view towards Messiah. The law, in my little example here, is that giant flashlight. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. You would say, thank God for the flashlight, because by following the beam of the flashlight, I can find the door. The door is this big flashlight. The beam, the, the commandments are the beam going, and the door is Messiah. You want to get out the door. You want to find your way to the door. So until Messiah doesn't mean until Messiah comes and the light stops. It means with a view towards Messiah. So that turns the whole Torah. That's why he says, in fact, this is so good, Paul says, that it was so good that God actually gave it with angels, in other words, with pomp and circumstance. And it was handed down through a mediator. Moses is not a bad mediator in Jewish thinking. He's the best mediator Jewish people have ever had. So by adding 
the angels and the mediator, he's lifting Torah to a lofty spot, far from pulling it down where the church says, well, oh, gosh, the Torah is so bad, it's a millstone around your neck, that you know, weighs you down until you say, God, take this off my neck. That'd like, be like you and I in the room again going, gosh, get rid of this flashlight. Why would you want to get rid of the flashlight? It's showing you the way out to the door, right? You want to get out. So the, the flashlight's not a bad thing. The law's not a bad thing. And it's not something that just sits back and shows you sin and stirs up sin. It actually provides a remedy. The sacrifices had a view towards the Messiah, and that's why they worked. Okay? That's all I can go with, because I run out of time. Does that spin the verse entirely different now? Wait till you get my translation. Because, you know, I have my own translation. You want me to read that verse and then I'll close? Here's Ariel's translation, chapter 3, verse 19. So then, what is a true function of the Torah? It was added to provide purification of the flesh, stained by sin, with a view towards the coming of the seed about whom the promise had been made. Moreover, it was handed down through angels and a mediator. That's how I translated it. Because the Torah does purify the flesh. The sacrifices, they did their work. They took the sin that you had and took it off of you, the outward sin, and put it in God's presence where God disposed of it. They didn't change the inside. They didn't change your heart. They didn't change, change your conscience. But they took the sin on the outside. And when you're in a situation where you're in a room full of sin and you want to approach God and God says, I can't see you unless you get rid of sin, you want a device to step in to cleanse you of your outward sin so that you can converse with God. The sacrifices did that. So they did their job. Paul, knowing that, because he knew the Torah, wrote that the way he wrote it. Christianity, not knowing that, writes this stuff. We have to be gracious to our Christian brothers and sisters and help them understand this. Help them understand to move from here down to this. Okay? All right. Next week we'll kind of put a little bow on that and then we'll see where we can go. Any questions, comments? Yeah? All right. Sorry I went so fast. I ran out of time. Let's close and then next week we'll maybe pick up just a little bit of this and keep going. All right. Father, we thank you for, um, we thank you for sending your son. But we also thank you for sending the Torah which pointed the way towards your son. And because of that, we know that it was a good thing, not a bad thing, not just a neutral thing, but something that's positive for us. And now that we have matriculated and accepted your son, we look to that Torah to continue to um, uh, show us what sin and what is righteousness and to show us how to walk. Bless you, Father, for all that you continue to do for us and through us. And we know that you are leading us to a place where we will be transformed to the very image of your son so that we can be him and see him like he is. Thank you, Father, for all that you do. In Yeshua's name, amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. 
we have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.